We are in uh, kind of part two of the series on the heart of Christ, uh, and that's the subtitle of a book, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. and we've been mentioning this book. Uh, our elder team is reading it, several of our pastors across uh, Redemption, Arizona, are also uh, been reading this book as well, um, and it's been uh, very influential. It's been very devotional, too, and the idea behind it is we want to have uh, the right eyes and the right heart uh, as we navigate our current culture. And that just includes kind of everything that's been going on. And the, and the Word of God to us is both a mirror, you've heard us talk about that, and it also provides lenses. It provides a way for us to properly see the world and properly live according to the principles uh, and the character of God. And so gentle and lonely, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. Uh, and that's where we want to kind of go today. And we're going to we're going to launch out of a passage in the book of Micah. So if you've got uh, your Bible or if it's on your phone or tablet, you can go ahead and open to Micah. And Tim's going to kind of set that up and take us, take us through that. Yeah, I would assume that if uh, you asked any church person to tell me about Micah, you would say Micah 6.8. What does God require of you, right, to do justly and to love mercy and walk humbly? And that's predictable because it's a great verse, makes great sermons and t-shirts and things like that. But I thought for us to really understand the power behind verse 8, that we need to get the macro uh, understanding of Micah and its intention. If I were to suggest to you a, a prophecy, a position from God to people um, that is really culturally relevant, Micah would be the one for the season that we find our world in. Let me give you the backdrop to Micah a little bit. Micah serves as a confrontation from God towards God's people. It starts with the leadership, which is always true. If leadership's in trouble, then people are in trouble. You know, they don't get far from each other. Um, but anyway, God is bringing an indictment against Israel, specifically as it pertains to injustice in the nation. Injustice sows itself, at least in Israel at that time, with... Uh, uh, unfair practices towards the poor and towards women and towards the sick and the marginalized people. So here's, here's how it sounds. If you've got your Bible, chapter 1, this is how the entire statement starts. And I'm going to pick up the second half of verse 2. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. All right, now whenever you hear that, you should, you should kind of bear up because God's about to say some things that he assesses in his people. Verse 5 all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So he's confronting some sins, and if you want to boil down what the problem is, all you need is chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a devastating uh, indictment against Israel and its problems. Chapter 2, verse 1, um, it says, Woe to you, those who devise wicked, wickedness and work evil on, your, on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields, they seize them, and houses, they take them away. They oppress a man in his house and a man and his inheritance. And there's way more details of what's going on, but generally speaking, it, it looked kind of like this. You could, uh, and they did, they would bribe judges in the cases of decisions between people and poor lost. And so as long as you had enough money, you could pay for the for the conclusion that you wanted. They would pay prophets to preach sermons that people love to hear. And, uh, and people love to hear things. There's a statement in here where Micah makes an assessment of what people would put up with in preaching. And he says, you'd rather have us talk about wine and strong drink than ever preach things that deal with your heart. And I think there's a tendency in culture that whenever you push on things that are deeply rooted in the heart and the sinful thoughts of man, 
Well, man wants to tap out. Just make it easy. And so the prophet has the responsibility to bring the indictment of God on God's people. Nevertheless, um, they they were bribing judges. They were paying for prophets to preach a certain message. It was materialist materialistic at all costs, like go for it. In fact, in chapter 2, it says they lay in bed and they devise wicked schemes and they wake up in the morning to perform them. I mean, that's just, that's just evil there. And, uh, and they were stealing people's possessions and robbing land from the poor. And you know, when you take land from the poor, there is no possibility for profit in the future. And it was just an ongoing sense of brokenness. And when God is all done finishing his condemnation and confrontation of Israel, you see a brutal picture of the heart's condition. These are not just one-off little things that people struggle with. This was a like a, an overall broad description of the heart and the condition of people's heart in, in Israel at that time. Well, you take that as an understanding and you skip over to chapter 6. Um, in, in, in fact, in Jack, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, these are the verses we probably aren't as familiar with before verse 8. You have, you have the people's predicted response before you get to verse 8, which is God's response. So you see, okay, here's the indictment, and here's the responses. Here's the prediction in verses 6 and 7. Well, then, God, if that's what you see, this is a paraphrase, uh, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? In other words, okay, God, you see a problem. How do I fix it? What am I supposed to do? And he says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Well, the yearling calf was considered the most valuable, the most quality version of a sacrifice. And so here is, here is unrepentant, brokenhearted Israel saying, okay, what do we bring, God? Do you want something really good? Would you, would you like our church service to be really great that Sunday? What, would, what do you want? And they go on, they say, Shall, uh, will the Lord be pleased with, with thousands of rams and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? In other words, God, is it, if, it's not, if it's not quality you want, maybe it's quantity. Maybe, God, if we just overwhelm you with like these, these sacrifices, maybe then you'll be okay with where we're at. And then this most absurd statement, shall, we give, shall I give my firstborn for the transgression, the fruit of my body? I mean, they pick up a pagan practice, child sacrifice, to say, God, what if I gave the ultimate? So you've got quality, quantity, and ultimate. God, what version of doing church and kind of pseudo-sacrifice would you be okay with where we're at? They're not interested in repentance, and they're not interested in seeing from God's vantage point. They just want to solve the tension here by offering sorts of sacrifices. And then you get to verse 8. And this is where the whole context really matters. It's God's turn to respond. And again, I'm going to paraphrase to kind of make it strong because Micah 6.8 has been dominated in t-shirt form and bumper sticker form and really easy, wonderful, everyone agrees messages, but that is not how God is meaning this in verse 8. Here's what he says. He has told you, O man, what is good. In other words, this is how you should read it. People of God, you already know what you're supposed to do. You're asking me if, you'll, if I'll accept this offering or that offering or this offering. You already know how I feel about these issues. And then he impacts do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. And so in context, that, that's where we're at. And that's why we felt like if there's any passage of Scripture that I know of that confronts the, um, the brokenness in the sense of those with and those without, our, our culture is pulling itself apart on these issues. And so I, I want us to lean into it as if God is writing this to us today. What does God want from us, church? What does he want from us? How do we, how do we live faithfully? And so here we get into this thing of justice, which we talked about 
completely last week, but just for the sake of building the, the argument, why don't you just remind us again of what it is to do justice? Yeah, if you missed last week, I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to that, especially where Tim brought uh, really passage after passage from the prophets talking about God's heart for justice. But really, it was more than just God's heart for justice. God was creating a culture or a society that was based around this idea of biblical justice rooted in hesed love. If you go back to Exodus chapter 3, and I just want to kind of start there because it shows us the heart of God or the awareness of God uh, towards those who are suffering. In particular, he's talking here to his people, and he says, he's speaking to Moses, he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, meaning I'm paying attention. I'm dialed in to what is happening with those who are being oppressed of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. So I'm seeing and I'm hearing uh, their cry because of their taskmasters and I know their sufferings. I'm empathetic. I have, there's compassion. Ty talked about that, the bowels of compassion. That word compassion it literally means like co-with and passion is suffering. So I'm suffering with them. I'm all the way, I'm all the way in. So not only does he have an awareness of what's happening with the, with the people who are being uh, afflicted, but then he starts to describe what a society of God-following people and God-fearing people will look like. In, in Deuteronomy, he's describing this. He, he's talking about himself here. He says he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner or the foreigner or the refugee. Um, therefore, giving him food and clothing, love the sojourner, the foreigner, the refugee, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And then he, he sets up and he starts to talk about this sabbatical year, this year of, of jubilee. This is a, a wild practice. No other society, no other people uh, were even thinking about doing something like this. He says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command to you today. And then he says, if, uh, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Meaning, in the very same way that I saw and heard and listened and was aware of your afflictions, you should have that same level of awareness towards those who are poor and oppressed. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, wherever it may be. So a, a radical system that God is setting up where there won't be generational debt, there won't be generational uh, enslavement because a, a land that was lost or because of a, a deal that went bad. Um, you Also, if you remember in the scriptures, God would, and he would tell his people, do not, uh, don't go all the way to the edge of, don't go all the way to the margins of your land because that doesn't belong to you. I've actually set that apart for those who are poor. So if you pick
picture like uh, a field uh, for their agriculture because most of their wealth would have been kind of bound up in agriculture. God is saying, okay, the first fruits, the stuff that is right in the middle, that's mine. That doesn't belong to you, so don't take that. Give that to me. Um, and then everything that's on the margin, that doesn't belong to you either. That's to be set apart for the poor. So God is clearly just not only through the words of the prophets, but the way that he's even setting up society is clearly wants of people um, to have a heart towards justice. And if you look at what all the prophets bring, when they come and they speak to the people, they're speaking against idolatry. That is the thing that they were looking for that wasn't God, mostly power, like in the case in, in, in Micah here. Um, and they were misusing that to oppress people. So idolatry and injustice, the, the prophets railed against that. And then when Jesus shows up on the scene, in the book of Luke, um, he steps into the synagogue and then he asks for a, a scroll from the prophet Isaiah and listen to what he reads about himself. So Jesus, the fulfillment uh, of everything that had been prophesied, the, the God incarnate, this is what he says about himself. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls it up and he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, meaning I'm here to fulfill and to bring all that has been taught, all that has been prophesied. The God of justice is me here. It's Jesus Christ walking among uh, our people. I, I didn't say this the last service, but as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm kind of creating like other questions in my mind, so I'm going to take a second. Sometimes when Americans, and even the American church, hears conversations or words of justice from God's vantage point, we start to wrestle with the political side of this, or kind of what does that mean? Just remind yourself, church, every time God speaks to his people, there is a theocracy understood. In other words, there's a people of God under the kingship of God, um, and therefore he dictates life. Well, America doesn't represent the theocracy. You know that, right? You do. The bride of Christ does. The church does. We're not jumping giant theological caves here to get to the place of how Micah applies to us. God is looking at his people who declare him as Lord and saying, will you live like I've commanded you to live. I don't put the burden on lawmakers. I mean, I want them to do good for people. But when everything looks like it's going to heck in a handbasket out there, I'm not confused. What bothers me is when the church acts like it. When the church says, well, then these things don't matter to us because what's going to speak for us regarding these issues is politics. Or what's going to speak to us about these issues is the way culture defines. And I don't know, I, I just feel this sense of burden that we're going to stand before God and have to give an account for how we lived as him as king. And you're not going to be able to say, well, I lived in America. There were laws that apply. You have to seriously see, in a sense, the church lives with theocracy too. We have King Jesus. We serve him and everything else flows from that. That's why we can push in these issues of justice and go, he's never not cared about it. And we don't have fields that we leave the margins for. And we don't probably think so much about first fruits, although that's a part of a culture, I guess. But generally speaking, that's why justice matters to God. And that's why it should matter to the church is because we have a king. Somebody say amen to that. Okay, let me move on to the second part of this verse, love, mercy. It's the word hesed love. You hear us say it all the time. It's the part of our salvation, our, uh, 
this vertical relationship, you know, God encounters you and your sin somewhere and your train wreck story, and he pours out on you, number one, the understanding of your need and your inability and your sin, and then he provides this thing called grace that just blows your mind. It, it changes everything. It is the steadfast love of God that not only saves you, but holds you for the rest of your life. And so as a Christian, you go through your life and you fail and you get up and you fall and you get up and you struggle. And the older you get, you realize how bad you are and it just gets overwhelming. And yet it's the Hesed love of God that ends the argument. You never are left with your life to prove your worth to God. You're left with the love of God for you that can't be shaken, right? Okay, that Hesed love is the word used here for love, mercy. All right? It is a way to kind of describe how that would look in this discussion of what God requires of us. It's the, instinct, the instinctive part of mercy is the issue of pity. And pity sounds like a bad word, like, you know, I think of um, Mr. T, a pity the fool. That, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about climbing in the shoes of another person, like getting in the, the life perspective and owning that experience and saying, that isn't my story but I'm going to steadfastly love you by looking at life. Someone, uh, someone described it like ha- the church has to have double vision, not only where, the, where these things apply to us in our stories, but the willingness to walk in a brother's shoes and a sister's shoes and to see life, you know, that way. And so I, I, I read this quote, and it convicted me to the core, so good morning. I'm going to give it to you. Maybe it'll convict you. It was in the prophet when he talked about loving mercy, this guy said this, There is no religion without love. The man who does good but does not love is not a good man. He pretends to be. And I don't know what that means to you, but it it meant something to me, like, uh, you know, how we keep score of how we stand in our faith or how we stand before God. And, you know, I did this, I served that, I gave that up, and we're like tallying on that thing. And and then, then you get to the bottom line, all that stuff is for nothing, if I have not love. And uh, that's very convicting. And I, I think there's a second salvation, or maybe, maybe a, a, cut me some slack on the terms, but there's a kind of saving we want to do for ourselves. I want to be, be a good man. I want to feel like a good man. I want to feel like a good man so I don't ever have to assess where I'm not a good man or where I need to make adjustments. Just let me use whatever I've done to justify whatever I feel. And... Uh, What's really convicting about this is there's no way to do justice at all the way God requires unless you love mercy, unless you have hesed compassion for the story of another. I would imagine when, when uh, the marginalized people in Israel were getting, you know, mistreated, that it was just impossible to see from that vantage point, so the care was lost. There was no issue whatsoever. So anyway, the bottom line is loving mercy... Um, the only way to do justice is to love mercy. I, I thought about me again. I hate to keep using my, my inabilities or my bad perspectives as an illustration, but maybe you can share it. I thought, well, who in here wouldn't understand or love justice? Like if I say, church, do justice. I don't need anybody standing up going, no, I'm kind of against that. That's not right. Um, you all say yes to justice. But if I say to you, you can't do justice unless you care with this empathetic care, this climbing in the other person's story and seeing life from their side of the street. You can't do it and, and ultimately have it matter at all. And, and one guy, again, another quote said, many fulfill the first requirement but stop short of the second. They do justly, 
but they don't love mercy. They are as upright as a marble column and as cold and as hard. They lift themselves up in the integrity like some snow-clad mountain peak, but it is always wintertime with them. No gentle beam ever falls on them to thaw the ice and make the, the generous stream to flow in blessing to the valley beneath. They never ask any favors, and they never wish to give any favors. And that convicted me to the core, like the, the point of in, even the ability to obey the justice part of this. If it doesn't come from this broken heart climbing in the shoes of another, I can't even fulfill that. And then he, then he goes on to talk about, which is really kind of a walk away, leave today with, is the walk humbly. Walk humbly with God. And so um, I think the way to think about humility is like, see what you'd be like without God. And I, I thought you could help us just kind of work through just a biblical lens of where that kind of humbleness starts. Yeah, I think um, it starts with the, with the entering in. Like if, if I'm using the person of Jesus and the, and the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus, how he entered in at the lowest part in the lowest place. Mm-hmm. He's a baby who's born to people on the run. He's a refugee baby born on the run in a cave outside of town at midnight. Um, he doesn't, he, you know, he doesn't, he is a king, but he, he comes in that, in that humble way. When you were talking about kind of the, the entering in, walking a mile in someone's shoes, I was thinking about my son. He's uh, six or seven, dad of the year. Um, <laughs> but ish. he's, yeah, ish. but he's kind of in this phase right now where he thinks there's a monster in his closet. So got to leave the light on. And now I could, I could just say, son, there's no such things as monsters and just completely dismiss him where I could say, hey, here's a podcast you need to listen to on why monsters don't exist or here's a tweet I found or here's an article or whatever. I could, I could, do, I could go that way, um, but I'm not loving him. Um, but what I could also do is I could, I could crawl in bed with him. I could turn on lights. I could look from where he's laying down staring into his closet and say, for him, that's, that's real, and it's causing real suffering and anguish in it. So I, I will, as a dad, I'll, like, I'll make myself go low at his level or below his level, which is what we have seen in Christ. So that's why Paul says, that's the mindset. Mm-hmm. That's the mindset. How can you disadvantage yourself for the advantage of others? And it looks foolish, right? Which is why we ultimately don't want to do it because there's a, there's a foolishness to it. But when God sees that, he says, that's the most beautiful thing that my kids can be doing. Yeah, the word, actually in the original language, walk humbly is one word. And it's the only time it's used in all of scripture. And so when you have a one-time use word, uh, interpreters have a hard time kind of being really super precise on what it means. But the best of the best kind of boil it down to this thought. It's the idea of preparing yourself to walk humbly. You know, it's not like you just go, I'm humble, so I'm going to walk humble. There's work to be done to walk humble. And uh, it's preparing yourself that way. And, and I would tell you this, and it's what you just said, that humility, true biblical humility, comes only one way. It comes in proximity to God. It's like, uh, you know, there are several, this sounds weird, but... Uh, in your Christian life, as you walk through, there are things you discover about God that reveal stuff about you, and they all, they all feel salvific, you know? Like, uh, when I didn't know Jesus, and, and I saw my sin for the first time, and I realized that he could forgive it, 
It's like a salvific moment. It is a salvific moment. But every time I discover something else bigger about God that, that morphs me into something smaller, it's like another discovery. It's like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how big he is or how, how puny I am. And then every time I discover more of my inability or my, my propensities, I realize what grace really means or what salvation really means. That God wasn't just kind of realigning or sorting out a guy that's going to be useful for the kingdom. He takes an absolute perpetual train wreck who can't get out of his own way. And he loves him. And the part of that is just so humbling. Yesterday, I was raging in anger. And I don't even want to tell you why. There's lots of pressure. But I've, I have two emotions in my life. I'm not very nuanced. I'm either happy-go-lucky or I'm on fire. Do you understand? Somebody say amen. You've got to at least relate to me. Yesterday was one of those days. Like I, just, I just want to hit something, but I can't. I just want somebody else to feel this pressure and see what it feels like to walk in my shoes, but nobody will. And I'm going, I just want, I want to make it right. And then I pick up the Bible and it strips me naked. It just reveals me to the core that you're the punk this whole story's for. You can't even control your emotions. You make it about you. You're, you're sensitive or you don't, have, you don't have courage or whatever the things are. And at that point, I just kind of go, oh man, I just get under the greatness of God, and it makes me smaller, not to a crippled state, not like a, oh, I'm nothing, I have no value, but to a perspective state where you kind of own the, you own the demeanor, you own the spiritual reality that we are nothing without him. And if God would open up what we deserve, we're all ruined. And that right there, that proximity to God should make us prepare ourselves to always walk humble when we're talking about somebody else's story. Specifically, as it pertains to things of justice or when someone is marginalized or someone is hurt, and as opposed to looking through our lens alone and going, well, why don't they try harder? Why don't they work more? Why don't they do this? I don't know enough to know what things apply to the story, but if I start there, I never get to loving mercy. And I will never get to loving mercy unless I walk humbly to realize what I am without the love and grace of God. And so in the whole depiction of this passage, you have to see Micah 6.8 as a pyramid, okay? Most of the time, we start with justice, and justice is at the top, and we go, well, how do I do justice? Well, hopefully what you've heard today is that the foundation of being able to pull off justice starts with humility. The biggest base of this is understanding we're sinners who are in serious problems with God, who every day of our life falls short of his glorious standard. And that, that reality creates small people, intentionally small people, who end up looking like Jesus when we love other people. We, we go, oh, I'm going to extend to you the grace and the love that I feel from the Father because of how pathetic I am. And so then comes loving mercy, this tested love. And the conclusion of understanding what we are in, in Christ, what we are without Christ, is this, this love that moves us to the next thing. The natural fringe of people who've been loved like that will do justice like God. You can't run from it. You can't take one and not the other. One is inevitable after you get humility. Humility makes you love. Love makes you care about things being right in the world with people. And uh, so I, that's the kind of the, the, the pyramid I want you to think about. But I am also sort of a mechanic by, by nature, and I, I would prefer to be a mechanic, by the way. Um, but I thought about, okay, what do I do? How do I go after, if humility is the key to all this, how do I go after humility in such a way? So I've got some pointers, all right? This is not meant to be exhaustive, but at least it will help us um, maybe start pursuing this. And 
some of this will sound blunt. Um, I love you, so don't take it like that. I just don't want you to misunderstand. First of all, I would say, let the word serve as a mirror, not, not a reflector. This is James. You know, he's talking about being a doer of the word, where he suggests that some Christians will look at the word only for a minute, then go away and forget what it revealed. The church has a serious problem today. It forgets what it is. It forgets where God found us. It forgets the heart of Christ. It forgets what should drive us and what, what matters to him. What are the weighty matters? And so what happens is this thing doesn't become this mirror that just strips me bare. It becomes a reflector to say, you know what the problem is? It's not me. It's you. I know everyone has a problem. But mine's are, mine are so great, I, I have too much to do to worry about everybody else's problem. And I think, I think the demeanor of humility is formed on the back of understanding that this thing primarily functions to expose each person as they look at it. Does that make sense? Here's the second thing. This is probably more blunt than you want to hear, but again in James, shut your mouth and open your ears. Right? So be quick, quick to listen, slow to speak and quick to listen. Right? Paul talked about this, uh, I think a week ago. You reminded us of this passage. And um, I don't know how to do it in a culture that has created all these systems for us to do mostly work with our mouth. Nothing is set up for you to manage, to manage your ears. Nothing. We're all trying to get our gun off and tell people what we think. I think it's opposed to the word. I think it's opposed to the heart of Christ. It's against James' instruction to be slow to speak. Um, God help us. I mean, if I, had, if I cared about social media and if I was on it, I'd be disqualified from ministry because I just emote. I just pour it out like I'm mad today. There you go. Um, but I don't like it, and, I, and I'm, I'm not telling you to do anything with it. I'm just saying, listen, everything's stacked against you in this category. Everything. The culture is saying, say it, just say it, just say it, just say it. Don't listen, don't listen, don't listen. Somebody else's fault, somebody else's problem. It's a political thing. And we are not even fulfilling what James commands about being uh, slow to speak and quick to listen. Let me give you a third thing. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking in Matthew 7 about judging others. Perhaps you remember this passage. And he suggests that you shouldn't be in the business of judgment. In fact, he says, uh, why don't you work on the log in your own eye before you deal with the speck in your brother's? You remember this? All right, I don't want to have to read it. Um, but I th- what, what's profound about that thing, uh, sometimes we think about that passage from this position. Like somehow, yeah, I've got to get to your speck, but there's pre-work I have to do. So I'm going to make certain that I'm pure or if I come after your specks. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying at all. I think the specks that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 are the implied sins that we all carry around with them. They're the sins that the scriptures tell us that love covers over a multitude of. You know, like the chinky part about being human and and not being finished and being in the process of being transformed. You know, the awkward stuff where we do stuff we don't even recognize we do. This is the kind of the, the unconscious sins that Tyler talked about the other day. The, the, the specs that we all deal with are the sins that we don't recognize. I think it's the predominant way in which the church struggles. But we're supposed to have love enough to go, I got it, I understand. I've been there too. I don't think, I don't think Jesus was saying, get after the specs. Here's what he was saying. The log in your eye blinds you. It distorts everything you see. You don't even know how to pick out specks. 
You don't even know the only issues in your own life. There is a ginormous forest in your vision, and you think the problem is everywhere else but where it is. You cannot see the answers. You cannot see, you cannot see the problems. There is a log. And I think what that is is a condemnation from Jesus to say the reason why we shouldn't get in the accusation game is because most of the problem that affects what we can actually discern is our own problems. Make sense? You guys happy today? I can't tell. Okay, uh, two others. One we say all the time, live small. We talk about this at leadership level all the way. Fight to be obscure. Fight for obscurity because it's not natural. First Peter talks about um, that God gives grace to the humble, but what does he do? He opposes the proud. I do not want the opposition of God. And because humility isn't natural, we have to fight for being small, putting on a slave apron, being quiet and listening, and caring for other people more than we care for ourselves. That's work we have to do. And then one last one, and then we're out of time. I would suggest that we have to embrace the lifestyle of the humble. And, and perhaps you remember, in, uh, I'll take you to one passage in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul tells us that he, he beseeches you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. That living sacrifice is in every minute of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year of your entire life. The depiction of what it is to live the Christian life is a life dying to itself. And I'm telling you, if you live to die to yourself, you will experience the pain of death every day. Every day. And if you don't want pain... And if you don't want to die to yourself, then you will not do anything that includes humility or loving mercy or doing justice. You will not care about those things because predominantly you'll look at the world through a lens of what will benefit you and not others. And I'm just telling you, when we stand before the Father someday, he will not ask you what you are and as far as politics or what decisions you made that moved American society. That doesn't matter at all. What matters is, did you love like me? And what, what really concerns me it, it, to be honest with you, is uh, people aren't doing the math. Like you're never going to get to heaven and God says, you love too much. You went too far with that compassion thing. What he's going to do is he's going to find all of us being short. So in that grand scope, that grand understanding, just see, just see Micah as this really great modern interpretation of the culture that we're in. And and also God's heart and what he's calling his people under the kingship of Jesus to live into. Walk small because you have been forgiven much. Love like you've been loved. And get busy treating people the way you'd want to be treated. I think that's the essence of chapter 6, verse 8. Yeah, and it's interesting how uh, Micah ends, which takes us to our time of communion. So if you've got those elements that were on your seat, you can go ahead and get those ready and take those out now. Um, because Micah ends with really the motivation for all of this. What takes us and makes us a humble people is when we go to the foot of the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus. What makes us want to love is because, like Tim was saying, we realize how deeply we've been loved. Um, we extend mercy because of how mercy has been extended towards us. Um, but listen what the prophet says about God at the end of, uh, at the, end of the book in chapter 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast or hesed love. He will again 
have compassion on us. Again, compassion. He will tread our iniquities underfoot, and he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And that was all accomplished fully, finally, and perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. His perfect life, his perfect sacrifice on his cross, where his body was broken, bruised, crushed, pulverized, not for his rebellion, not for his sin, but for mine and for yours. And so we take the bread and we eat in remembrance of that. The cup also reminds us of the spilled blood of Jesus Christ that paid a ransom that set us free, that created for those who trust and fully in the sacrifice of Jesus, created for them a new life forever with him. Let's take and drink. And every time we eat and we drink, uh, we remember what the Lord has done. Um, we proclaim that he is king, and we look forward to the day he returns. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we love you. God, we thank you for your word for us this morning. God, in this especially, would we not just be hearers? God, would this just not wash over us today? But God, would you, would you do something in us? God, and would we do what you've laid out for us to do? God, would we walk humbly with you and love mercy and do what is just and right in your world? We ask for your help in this and in the power of your name. Amen.